I'm Kate LaVale. And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group. We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems. With more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's becoming harder than ever to understand the world around us. So we're on a mission. To combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom. To connect the dots and answer the so what. And empower you to do the same. This is another episode of The Canary Group. I'm Michael Vieira. And I'm Kate LaVale. Thank you so much for joining us. I am absolutely over the moon to be able to introduce our guest today. We've got Nina Jankowitz, who is a disinformation uh, and I would say gender and disinformation expert. Nina, would you like to say hello? Good afternoon, or I guess whatever you are listening, wherever you are listening, hello. (laughs) Uh, It's good to be with you, Kate and Michael. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a treat. Um, Nina is a dear friend in addition to being a genius. And we were so excited that she was willing to chat with us about disinformation. Obviously, you can read her books, which are both stellar, uh, How to Lose the Information War and How to Be a Woman Online. Of course, she's got publications out the wazoo, and you can see her all over your television. You can see her everywhere, but she just recently got back from Ukraine, so we're really excited to uh, hear about her experience there and what that was like, too. We're assuming zero background. Can you tell us the difference between disinformation and misinformation? This is a favorite one of mine. So even just yesterday, I was at an event with a bunch of academics where one of the guys with a PhD used the term misinformation when I believe he meant disinformation. So the difference is intent, in short. Uh, Disinformation is the use of false or misleading information with malign intent. Misinformation is when you're spreading false information, but you don't necessarily have malign intent behind it. So I always like to say it's like your crazy Uncle Bob or Aunt Sally at the Thanksgiving dinner table who just loves to traffic in conspiracy theories and push people's buttons and say things like just asking questions. Um, Now, not everyone who says that is is doing it so uh, benignly. But at any rate, um, that's the difference. Uh, And it, it really irks me when we hear, especially people who should know better, who are messing up those two terms or mixing up the two terms. Yeah. And it's it's an important distinction. I think you can have disinformation drive misinformation of people who honestly think they're sharing fact, uh, but it doesn't really work the other no, way around. No, no, so it does not. Uh, we will we will be talking about mis or about, <laughs> we'll be talking Jesus about disinformation. Yeah, so we actually, it has not yet been released, but we just did our first part of a two-parter on conspiracy theories. And yeah, looking into like psychology and sociology of conspiracy theorists, as well as sort of the nature of social control. Mm. We'll be getting more into like the actual fun conspiracy theories next time, but 
what it was the perfect lead up because we were basically talking about why some conspiracy theories are so powerful and how they're leveraged with intent. Whereas others are just, it's almost a psychological need to uh, regain control or to make sense of an out of control world. And that need, I think, is what creates that perfect, perfect climate for disinformation to come in and have its way with things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, conspiracies, conspiracy theories can be a, a subset of disinformation for sure. And I always say um, the most convincing disinformation is actually stuff that is not fully made up. It's got a kernel of truth in there somewhere. And what makes it mm-hmm. so powerful is that it targets people who are vulnerable. Either they're financially vulnerable or vulnerable because they feel disenfranchised or uh, left behind, whatever. Or it's just people targeting people along our fissures of, of the, our society. Ooh, you're not the only one having speaking issues today. <laughs> We're having a rough day. <laughs> um, but, uh, but so it could be things like, you know, along ethnic rifts, along rifts, along um, things related to hot button issues like gun control or gay rights or things like that. And all of that amounts to a really ripe environment for exploitation for either disinformers, like Russia or Iran or China or conspiracy theorists who might be operating globally or they might be operating locally. So I have a very ignorant question, which is, would you say that there is, if you could quantify the amount of disinformation out there right now, are we, should we be more concerned about the sort of state sponsored state endorsed disinformation or the sort of I don't even want to say right wing, but just winged groups. Yeah, there's definitely of, both. Of any direction. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Um, <laughs> I think given the state of disinformation studies and also our political climate right now, I have been cautioning that especially ahead of the 2024 election, we are in a worse state than we've ever been for the kind of flourishing of disinformation. I think that comes from both sides. Uh, it could be, you know, just our, our friends abroad, but I think there we have evidence that there is plenty of homegrown disinformation, and I've been ringing the alarm bell about that for years. What worries me mm-hmm. is that because of, and your listeners are probably not aware because it's a super niche issue and why would anybody follow this, but there has been a concerted campaign to undermine the academic and research-based work that disinformation researchers have been doing for the past almost decade, uh, myself included. Uh, This is being led by Fox News, by some folks in the right wing, including Stephen Miller and his group that are funding a lawsuit, as well as Jim Jordan, who through his House Committee on the Weaponization of Government has been targeting disinformation researchers. And it is making the cost of doing this work of uncovering the truth and just saying things like, here's how many lies we found on Facebook or whatever, or, or noticing trends like uh, our former colleague Cindy Otis and I wrote a, a, a article about Facebook groups long before people were worried about them. We said, hey, you guys better look at this. All of that mm-hmm. is now under threat. Um, and in combination with that, civil servants who are working on these issues are being told that they can't talk to the platforms anymore. So uh, before, there used to be kind of a system of flagging concerning content to the platforms and saying, hey, we think this might violate your terms of service. You better take a look at it. And then the platforms made their own decision. There was no coercion, right? 
there's this conspiracy theory, actually, of this vast network of collusion between researchers, between civil servants, and between the platforms to censor conservative voices. And it's bullshit. The government can't do that. The government wouldn't do that. Uh, the government has a, a right to speak up for itself. In this case, the government <laughs> was trying to push back on harmful narratives related to public health and, uh, you know, the functioning of our democracy, things related to January 6th, etc., and now mm-hmm. there has been these attacks on researchers and civil servants. And I think the idea is to, A, make their work more difficult, but B, make it more costly on a personal level. So if you're a civil servant sitting in yeah. a, a stable job in government and part of your job is monitoring mis- and disinformation uh, and potentially, you know, working with partners across industry and outside of government to uh, – to, flag it at the very least, you're going to think twice about that now because of the uh, attacks on researchers. And I should say, caveat, for listeners that might not know, kind of this whole wave started with me when I was uh, in a government position Mm -hmm. last year. And um, and I'm really concerned about it. Having experienced it myself, it has really, I would say, upturned or messed up my life in a, a way that government service shouldn't lead, shouldn't lead to ever for anybody. Um, no job should, yeah. yeah. I mean, Especially I think government service. That, yeah. yeah, exactly. And certainly you have spoken at length with some incredible outlets about what you've experienced. We encourage everyone to go check those out. I don't want to sort of make you relive the trauma here. But it can be found quite easily with a quick Google search, all the things that Nina has been through because she signed up to try to do a job to make make things a little bit safer. Or I should even say to develop best practices to make <laughs> yeah. things safer. I didn't have the power It wasn't to even that you safer, were doing it. <laughs> which is the crazy thing. Um, the, the TLDR version for your listeners is that the entire right wing and some of the left believed that I was going to have the power to to put people in jail. You're going to censor and, and like censor internet. people over things they said on the internet, which is just hilarious given my family background. My, my grandfather was a refugee from Poland, was sent to a gulag by the Soviet Union and didn't go back to communist Poland for a reason, right? Uh, and, and I've spent my career standing up for activists in the former Soviet space who don't have the same rights to freedom of expression that we do. So the whole thing is laughable. And I'm suing Fox News as a result. So if anybody wants to donate to... Uh... Donate. <laughs> yeah. And we will include that link everywhere. Amazing. And then some. Yeah. So, so you can find that on all of our social media as well as pretty much on bumper stickers. I'm just slapping on cars <laughs> left and right wherever oh, I that's go. That's a good so. idea. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think you're, what you're saying, it's, it's incredibly timely because we're leading up to the 2024 cycle, which is terrifying. We're in a position where uh, I, I would say very effective efforts have been made to stifle the, the energies to try to curtail disinformation um, to try to make things even a little bit safer. It seems like everything runs up against a wall. What I think is so terrifying about this is what motivates these people to do it. There certainly are true believers who think that they are, you know, protecting the world. That is a level of mental health that I have questions about. But putting that aside, I think what's really disturbing is just when you trace back who this behooves to undermine the credibility of researchers on disinformation, to 
you know, get in and try to stir up trouble on like, you know, a bunch of a bunch of disinformation on the fires in Hawaii. Who does that benefit when you're saying we have to take care of our people in the U.S.? We shouldn't be spending money on a war in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I so it's really interesting that you bring that up because Tucker Carlson, I just saw today. Um, it, it seems like he is going to have a uh, either his his Twitter show or a new show is going to be aired on one of Russia's state sponsored propaganda outlets. Oh my god! And I'm not saying that there's any connection beyond you know a licensing agreement or whatever, but it's not a mistake, right? It's not a mistake that these <laughs> narratives have have echoed um, not only here but they're being run in in Russia as well. Now, I mean, I think if we're gonna look at it in a very kind of self centered way, I think you're right. There are very few. Uh, select few of true believers and then everybody else is doing it to shore up power and profit for themselves it's not Mm. about the american people because and my husband finds this argument really really um not compelling to most people but the truth is that the disinformation governance board the, the thing that i was supposed to run um it was a national security function, right? Looking at the disinformation affecting the homeland, which is a phrase I never really got used to saying, um, affecting the <laughs> homeland and saying, what are the things that we can do in our power without undermining privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties of Americans? How can we protect our nation? And the fact that Republicans, the party of Reagan, decided that this was a threat is just mind-blowing. And then you look at this, yeah. this, these other, you know, efforts, and, and these are efforts that have uncovered Chinese, Iranian, Russian disinformation. And, and yeah, they, they pushed back against conspiracy theories related to the 2020 election because all of those things just leave an open door for any foreign yeah. malign disinformation that wants to manipulate us. And they recognize that. And uh, unfortunately, any counter disinformation efforts are going to run afoul of what the right wing is doing, and so they don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah. they want to make sure that they've they've kind of paved the way for things to be easy for them as we head into twenty twenty four. And I just, I, I really, I know everyone thinks I'm like a crazy woke liberal. That's the the thing, but really, I am way more middle of the road than than people give me credit for. I used to very often say. I would work for a Republican who had a coherent Russia policy, somebody like Mitt Romney. Since then, mm-hmm. Mitt Romney signed mm-hmm. a letter that, uh, you know, supported the conspiracy theories against me, and now he's retiring. So, Sigh. Mitt, I, I take it all back. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the point is, uh, the point is that these these folks aren't they aren't true Republicans. They're not people who are who are uh, who are looking out for the American. Uh, nation or our security, in particular, our national security. And, um, you know, we're recording this. This is a great segue to talking about Ukraine. We're recording this the day after that Zelensky was in Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, He had just been at UNGA, the United Nations General Assembly in New York, and then came to Washington to kind of beg again uh, in front of Congress and other lawmakers about aid to Ukraine. And we need to be making the case that that is, is not something that is the opposite of American security. It's actually bolstering right. American security. It is keeping Russia at bay to keep Ukraine strong. And just because we're, you know, uh, separated by an ocean, we don't want Europe destabilized by another world war because we got sucked into those both times they happened. 
yeah, we did not skate free on either. So, and Michael, feel free to jump in. We're just no, having girl time. <laughs> I know. Like, I was like, Nina! Let's get our pillows and some popcorn. No, no, because you guys have just been having a really great conversation. And um, I felt if I was to interlude into it, it would basically, it would, it would break the flow. But you guys have been going, doing great. So Oh, we got flow. Yeah. Are, no, we're all good. No, fantastic. <laughs> I guess the I guess the only question I would ask about this is is that I mean we're right now we're looking at it from a US centric point of view mm-hmm. but I think has there been also I mean an overall rise do you think uh, in disinformation because you made you made me just want to basically coin a new word call it telling people that you're just being disinformed you know you mm-hmm. can say people are misinformed but saying yeah you're disinformed uh, and also do you think that because there was something that Kate and I have talked about in the past, and that has been sort of a mistrust of competency or a mistrust of, of expertise. And that was a word that was coined, I think, by somebody a few years ago in a paper. And and is that also tied into this? And why so? And why is this, there's this sort of, and we're seeing in places for various reasons, I think globally, a lot of people who seem to be um, skeptical of a lot of things. And why is that? Why are we in this this particular part in this age right now? Yeah. So on the, on the first question of whether there's more mis or disinformation, it's hard to know, right? We never really had a baseline study about how many lies were told. Um, and I think what I always say is that the internet has accelerated the pace of the lies and it has made it m- easier to target the most vulnerable people with the lies through advertising and also through, as I mentioned before, kind of targeted channels like Facebook groups or um, Telegram channels, things like that, that are closed and really hard to track for uh, for, for researchers, for journalists, and, and for the platforms even themselves. On the question about distrust of expertise, you know, I think there there's probably to some extent always, again, been some latent distrust of of the the Ivy Leagues or you know the the scientists in our society. I mean, look at the whole kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories because Jews were educated and moneyed in in Europe in the 19th and 20th century. Actually, encountered somebody last week on my trip to Europe who said something like, "The Jews uh, know how to manipulate." And I was like, "Are we fucking doing this right now? Are you oh, kidding me?" God. Um, but he was driving me in a car, so I. <laughs> I had to shut up and to, <laughs> to take me off the road. Until you, so get, anyway, to your de- um, until you get to your destination, yes, right? Yes, yes. Let me get out of the car. <laughs> um, but I think that has always existed. And now it is one of the vulnerabilities by which we can spread disinformation. One of the things to kind of capitalize on people's discontent, their feeling of feeling left behind. Again, their feeling of mistrust toward, if you want to call them higher classes, I think that, you know, you can call them that, but also I think it's ironic. A lot of people think all these misinformation and disinformation researchers like me make millions of dollars, which is <laughs> hilarious. I would never have published a book if I wanted to make money. I think I probably made right. negative money right. on my book. Anyway, um, and it did pretty well. So <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, so I, I think like the problem, and I thought about this a lot at the beginning of COVID because people were so hesitant to listen to what people were saying um, in the scientific community. Mm. And it's in part because the scientific community communicates very badly. Yeah, like, oh, Kate can probably health talk communication. About this a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting over here just like, yeah, yeah. I fully agree with everything you're saying. So, 
Jürgen Habermas ah, had good this. Old Habermas. Yeah, had this theory about the public sphere that if everybody had an equal voice, the world would be this, you know, just utopia where where those of us who are post-internet realize that that's a load of shit. That giving everybody a voice is not necessarily the most healthy thing you can do for for a culture. So one of the things that the internet did and this most communication scholars are pretty much aligned that this is sort of this was the phenomena but it gave everybody the sense that their voice counted that wasn't the case before people knew their voice didn't count <laughs> but now people think their voice matters and so you see people challenging folks who have decades of experience who have expertise and they're saying my voice counts just as much. Another contributing factor to this, and I swear we'll get back to disinformation, no, it's is interesting. the idea that both in Europe, especially in the UK, as well as in the US, the idea that you had to have a balance of voices. So on our news coverage, you had to always get balanced perspectives. So if you had someone who was pushing vaccines, you had to give equal time to someone who was on the other side of that. Unfortunately, what that well-intentioned sort of rule does is it actually elevates the voice of folks who may, may not actually be that credible, may not know what they're talking about, certainly don't have the scientific background. You know, so if you're talking about like a heart transplant and you have two doctors who differ on how to do a heart transplant, that's one thing. If you're talking about vaccines and you have a doctor who has, you know, a, a very powerful background in public health and or immunology, and you have someone who either is a doctor who was who lost their medical li license, which Andrew Wakefield, or you have a parent who swears their child got autism from a vaccine, compelling. But again, that's anecdotal. You're giving voice to an unequal party as far as just knowledge goes, yeah. not social status, nothing, but just the level of knowledge and expertise. You've now given so much credibility to that voice that doesn't have the same expertise as the voice that does. And you've, you've given them a platform yeah. and suddenly their perspective seems like it has as much credibility as your public health person. And that that sort of balance with the public sphere has made it much easier for, you know, Bill sitting in his garage and drumming up, you know, surfing the Internet and the dark web and coming up with these conspiracy theories and believing them and passing them on. That is how those voices become more powerful. And that's how, you know, especially when you're telling them, I'll tell you the real truth then they feel like they've got some more power because they know the inside story. They know the real, you know, the real machinations. So it is, it's just, it, you know, there's a number of things we did and I think they were well-intentioned that led us to this point where, you know, it's great that everybody's voice counts. I think, you know, on surface, we'd all agree with that. In real life, that's highly problematic because it gives credibility, just like it gives equal voice, it then gives equal credibility, equal authority, you know, and, and we're not teaching the media literacy that's needed to be able to tell the difference between those voices. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it also cheapens 
other forms of democratic participation. Like Mm -hmm. shouting about things on the internet and then getting together with your militia buddies is not how it's supposed to work. (laughs) You know, if you want to shout about something, there are a lot of venues through which you can shout about something. You can call up your representative. You can waltz Mm -hmm. up there to Capitol Hill and go to his or her office and speak to them. You can write them a letter that's how it's supposed to work. You can vote, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and sometimes elections don't go our way. And that's yeah. just how the system works. But instead, we've kind of empowered this both online and offline vigilanteism that I think is really, really disturbing. I mean, like, we don't have to talk about January 6th, but I think everybody agrees that it was a really dark day for the United States. And we had yes. an off ramp there. And instead, Matt Gates and his cronies and Josh Hawley and his cronies went back to session that evening and voted to kind of air those conspiracy theories some more. And I think that is what I was that shocked me more than the events of the day. Yeah. Was that you've seen the fruits of your labor. You've seen this come to fruition. You're doubling down on your self-interest. Yeah. Well, and then again, if they weren't going to do it that day, they had a chance to reset in 2021 after inauguration with the new Congress, and they just didn't. Mm -hmm. They just didn't. And here we are almost four years later talking about all the same stuff. Like, it's it's frustrating. It's frustrating. And as I said, I, I really do think that we're in a worse spot than we were in in 2016 because at least the lying and the disinformation there was a little bit more confined. The Russian playbook wasn't totally blown open. The liars in in domestic politics were a little bit more, uh, there were fewer of them. (laughs) And now it's it's spread like a cancer. Um, And and again, I want to say that it's not just people on the right who do this stuff. There's plenty of folks on the far left who who meet the right kind of in the Ouroboros of political ideology. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Political awfulness, yes. Oh, go ahead, Michael. I was just going to, well, I'm just listening to this and I'm glad that you brought that up, that it is sort of a, it's not just one side. It is actually something that is, everybody is at risk, you know? I mean, we are all, every single person is basically yeah we're basically at risk we we all have our biases and we all want to believe something sometimes at the risk of it not being illogical but how how can people basically inoculate themselves against disinformation you know that's i guess that's my question and because my my standard thing is if i'm reading something and it immediately invokes a an emotional response i become suspicious of it right if it makes me angry or if it makes me just nod my head and say, oh, yeah, right on. If it makes me scared, if it makes me, uh, you know, feel hopeless, I immediately am very uh, suspicious. And I, yeah. I and I will probably stop reading it as much as I would probably put down a poisonous snake or, you know, or, hmm. or a burning stick. Um, but, I, you know, but how can people inoculate themselves? That's the word I probably well, would use. Michael, you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, I think the most important thing is to recognize, especially how social media platforms surface content that is going to be more enraging because it's more engaging. And then, you know, the same thing is true of some of the clickbaity or more clickbaity media. A lot of times, especially in the last, you know, year and a half, almost, well, a little between a year and a half and two years of, of my life, when I've been written about a lot in, in these partisan publications, they'll allege something in the headline that is not at all supported by what's in the piece, right? And I think a lot of people don't read behind the headline or beyond the headline. And so we just have this extremely 
incentivized structure online for people to react emotionally. And I think that drives Mm -hmm. so much, so much disinformation and the spread of misinformation. I used to say during the coronavirus pandemic, when we were all talking about physical distancing, that we needed to practice uh, emotional distancing as well. Um, And do exactly what you said. If you find yourself getting that rise from a piece of content that you're consuming, the best thing to do is walk away from that content. Like actually put some space between yourself and and the content, whether it's on your computer or your phone. Go take a walk, get some fresh air, come back and say, okay, I'm still thinking about this. Clearly it's, it's like appealing to me in some way. Let me do a little bit of research. Is it getting covered on any other outlets? Are the facts correct? Like, am I able to do a little bit of fact checking across that way? Can I drop some of the text from the article into Google and see if any other articles have been published about it? Because sometimes we'll find, particularly with content farms, that those pieces are just being replicated uh, across the web. Do a reverse image search. See if the if the uh, image that's involved in that piece is actually an accurate image, or if it looks like it's been edited, or it, it's you know being used from five years ago and it's not actually what it's depicting. All of that sort of cross referencing is incredibly important. Doesn't take very long, and kind of again gives you a little bit more time to uh, to get the full picture. And so often we're not doing that. I mean, I've been guilty of it a couple of times where um, things have either been misreported or. You know, I was going on reporting that was a little bit uh, on shakier ground and I retweeted things back in the age of Twitter when I probably shouldn't have. And now um, one of the things I think that's the the healthiest outcome of all the crap I've been through and also the demise of Twitter is that I am no longer on a platform that is as constant. And even with, you know, blue sky or, or threads or whatever, I'm just I don't I don't miss it in my life. I don't miss it at all. And I think we all kind of have to be like that. Um, take take this moment of social media atrophy to reassess where you want to engage. And maybe it's a slower platform. But that all comes down to information literacy, like Kate mentioned before. I don't think there's one panacea that's going to inoculate everyone. But giving people the tools that they need to navigate today's information environments is really important. And again, that's what's so ironic about everything that people said about me. I, I'm not going to tell you you can't read something or you shouldn't read something, but I want to give you the tools to suss out how to find the thing that's actually true about what you want to read. And that's not anti-democratic, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think another thing, too, is sort of exploring, you know, both both of you hinted at it may be helpful to explore why you're reacting so viscerally. What is like that could tell you a whole lot about both you know, your own vulnerabilities, if you're trying to do sort of like a a risk assessment of yourself, what are your pressure points, being able to identify those, I think would be really healthy. And then also, I think it could tell you about the motives of anybody who's creating content like that. You know, so so not to get too sort of California woo woo, we can all learn more about ourselves from this. But I really do think that if you're going to do that personal risk assessment, which in this day and age, I don't think it's a bad idea at all. What are my pressure points? Where am I especially sensitive? What are my vulnerabilities? Like going through that, that's that's smart because that will tell you, you know, where you are going to be most prone to buying into to that kind of material. Yeah, I totally agree. I wish everyone would do that. Uh, it takes a certain amount of self-awareness, but I guess it's something like we've, we've got plenty of historical precedent that sh- has shown us mm. previous things like this. And before the internet, I mean, we could look at the 1930s and the 1940s and what happened in Europe. 
Uh, we could see what happened uh, probably in the 1950s in the United States, uh, you know, the Red Scare. I would say that we have a similar sort of situation right now in the United States where we are always, we're fearful of a, of a group rising up and, and taking down the government or, uh, or overthrowing things. And I just keep thinking that things are, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. But one of the things is, is that this is obviously a human condition uh, that's been around for a very mm. long time. And Kate and I were talking about, you know, when we're talking about conspiracies, we talked originally about the JFK conspiracy. And then I asked Kate, I said, do you think that like, you know, when when Brutus killed uh, Julius Caesar, people were saying, but there was another knifeman in the bushes, you know, on the, on the, the grassy knoll. Um, <laughs> so... so yeah, and yes, I think so. Yes, exactly. So the I, somebody somewhere was convinced that like this was there were at least two knife men. Yeah, or th- I think actually there were three. Maybe there was four. Right. You know. But maybe four. Right, yeah. But, uh, but in this case, though, it's like so we know this exists, and we know that this is part of our human nature, right? And we also know that we tend to be, uh, and, and when times are tough, and I would I would dare to say right now times are probably tough. Maybe not as tough as they have been in the past, but they're they're difficult for a lot of people. Um, what's another way though to sort of I mean to combat what I would call this this these feelings of for lack of a better word despair because I think that's what drives a lot of people toward I think a lot of these strong feelings or these feelings that they're not being heard or these feelings that they are actually you know, they're under attack. That's a really that takes me again not to just keep going back to the conspiracies episode but it was fun <laughs> one of the one of the um studies that i came across while doing research for it focused on if you are bored you are significantly more likely to believe conspiracy theories wow. well despair boredom being locked in your house for three years i mean i'm just saying yeah I think there's a common thread. Well, and I'm going to throw in another uh, political sociological thinker, uh, Robert Putnam Bowling alone, right? We yes. Are, um, we are less likely to be in, and he calls them something special, but like civil society. We are not engaged in our churches. We are not engaged in our bowling groups. We are not engaged mm-hmm. with other s- citizens except online. That's how we're finding connection. And it is extremely isolating to be in a Facebook group and you just want to fit in and so you start engaging in some of the narratives that if people said them to your face they might feel crazy um, uh-huh. but here you're, you're part of the in-group and these are your friends and you haven't had contact with another human being in several months and you know <laughs> right. um, and so I think one of the things that has come up time and time again in a lot of the work that I've done and even just last week in, in Ukraine is meeting people where they're at, like literally geographically where they're at, and understanding the things that are driving their sentiment and mood, and making sure that you are kind of coming at that with a place of compassion, which I think the internet really strips away. I mean, I'm sure that half or more of the people who have said horrible things about me and even threatened me, if they were given the chance to do that to my face, would not do that. And in fact, no. I've had a couple of instances where people, I look at their profiles and it's like an older dude with two grandkids and a dog in their profile picture. And then I look a little bit more and it's like, oh, he's a Vietnam vet. My dad was a Vietnam vet. Oh, he likes football. My, my family mm-hmm. was big into football when my brother was younger. My brother ended up doing college football. Now he's a football coach. His kid plays football, right? So, like, I find these areas of commonality 
that you probably would relate really well to that person and find a lot of common ground and and I've actually reached out them. to some of them I, I really so I, I can't do it all the time and I have to be in a certain sort of mood but um I said to this one guy who's a real person the, the one that I've just described I was like we have all these things <laughs> in common it was while I was still pregnant like at the very beginning of all of this and I said I'm about to welcome a baby into the world he hadn't said anything really horrible like he hadn't wished death on me but he was like laughing That's at nice. me because he believed I got fired, which I, I resigned. I didn't get fired. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how can you laugh at someone who is a, literally in weeks about to bring their first child into the world, no matter our political differences, surely laughing at someone who's been getting death threats in that the most vulnerable period of her entire life mm-hmm. is not something that you as a, you know, grandfather would condone. Yeah. Um, and he actually did apologize to me. Now, I don't have the time or energy to do that for everybody, but I think that sort of connection is what people are searching for, that common I just humanity. got chills. I really just got chills from that. I think you're right. I do think if we can see each other as human beings worthy of respect, it becomes much harder to other. Yeah. And I mean, othering is all about social control and being able to create stigma that's harder and harder the closer somebody is to you. And identifying those commonalities, I think, is a fin- that's that's an amazing sort of aha moment for me. Not to rip off Oprah, I hate that statement, but that was that was that kind of uh, fine. It was an aha moment. But I think the more that we can develop those relationships and that understanding and that that respect and recognition, just seeing each other for more than just, you know, a talking head, that's, that's one way we can start to build things back. Yeah, it just takes so much investment, though. Like, how can we do that on a national level? I'm not I'm really not sure, especially when so many of the people that we're talking about are really I mean, I, I, they're radicalized. These are gun toting radicalists. And would I pull the same thing with with a person who threatened me in a violent way? Absolutely not. But it it does make me feel a little hopeless when we think of of the people that have gotten to that point and the fact that we maybe have have lost them now. (sighs) You talked about radicalization and something I used to do in a previous life was counter radicalization. Mm. But when we're talking about it, uh, I guess it would depend upon the listener's point of view. So if you are a left-wing person, you're probably looking at those crazy right-wing people and they're, they're out of control. And vice versa, if you're on the right or more conservative, you're thinking those left-wing people are out of control. Um, and it's very hard, I think, to see. You can probably think to yourself if you meet someone one-on-one, but it, when we are in groups, and whether we're on the internet or we're out in the, the public space, I think for people, if the majority of people are one way or the other, it's very hard to speak uh, well of the enemy, right, in front of people. And that's, you know, that's a human quality that I think Kate and I had covered earlier in um, some other episodes. But, you know, if we're talking about having, you know, real, if you really want to have real change, I would also say that the, this period of time right now that a lot of people are not capable of having uh, conversations that make them uncomfortable. And yeah. I, I can I can sense pretty quickly when I'm having a conversation with somebody, it, maybe we don't see eye to eye, uh, politically or on social issues or things like that. But if we can have a calm, rational conversation and not have somebody throw something at somebody, then, you know, I think that's a win. But I'm finding that these days it's getting harder and harder to have those kind of conversations universally. 
uh, you can still have them, but it almost seems like you have to be you have to be very careful before you're having these kind of conversations. And I'm kind of wondering, it isn't just social media that's made that. What is in our society and in globally making people, I guess, less tolerant to different ideas? I don't have an answer for that one, but I was just reading about a uh, teacher, an English teacher, I think, in a high school in, I want to say, South Carolina, who um, had assigned uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, and uh, mm-hmm. she got reported because it made her students feel bad to be white. Mm-hmm. Like, as if we're not supposed to have our students feel anything <laughs> when they You don't want them feeling bad. Like, no one's allowed to, to struggle or to feel bad. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's bizarre. And then similarly, on a, on, a, on a similar topic, there was a professor, I think her name is Rebecca Journey, at the University of Chicago. She was a, a lecturer, not even a full prof yet. And she was teaching a course on whiteness. Uh, and I think she called it the problem of whiteness. And a conservative student who had a large social media following, who didn't ask anything about the course, probably didn't really look at the syllabus, basically sicked his entire social media following on her. And eventually the class was held, I believe, online because of threats to the university. Mm-hmm. And then she she pulled the whole thing um, because she didn't get the support that the that the university ought to have given her. The student wasn't punished at all for what he had done, um, despite University of Chicago's commitment to freedom of speech. Right. Um, and the course had nothing to do with making people feel bad. It was it was uh, about the shifting definitions of whiteness over time. Mm-hmm. It was a sociological kind of course. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if it's like part of... Uh, <laughs> the gentle parenting movement where where you know we're not supposed to make our kids feel bad or we're supposed to help them through our their emotions i don't know if it's it's risen from that but uh or or if it's something completely different i say that as somebody who's trying to practice gentle parenting um but yeah i don't know it's hard though because there's also michael and i have talked previously about the importance and the value of resilience and you can't grow resilience without having to endure something yeah like that you have to be able to practice to become resilient. If we don't present struggles and challenges, that doesn't make for resilient people. And I think people are not terribly resilient right now as far as being not even contradicted, but just disagreed with. That's something that there's no tolerance for. And I think too, when you look at just how people with those 30 second hot takes that then get a bunch of clicks, they get the dopamine release from it. They, you know, have a bunch of likes in their group. That is, it's tough to go up against that with empathy and understanding because that's so instantaneous. It's like a slot machine that if you can say something really, really inflammatory and make it quick and fast, the, the return on that is instant. And that's, it takes a lot longer to build relationships where people feel really seen. Mm. That doesn't happen that, you know, with like a 30 second bit. Yeah. I would dare to make a, a postulation that maybe with the current, the gentle parenting, I think that's a euphemism because Kate and I are both Gen X. So of course, you know, we spend most of our time outdoors fighting wolves, uh, you know, and, and, and <laughs> Fully latchkey. Exactly. You yes. Know, we, you know, all of our parents worked, and you know, our family never saw us except on the weekends, kind of thing. But it's sort of a thing too, though, as I think that maybe younger people had learned, have learned, that they can gain a certain amount of power, and that's a very human thing. 
yeah. by uh, outrage. Uh, I'm outraged by the fact that you've said this or you've done that. And they've kind of learned that they can gain a certain amount of advantage or power. Hopefully that's something that can be, I think that can be counteracted with experience. But you know, one of the things I've seen, I think, in our recent age is that a lot of people immediately go for the nuclear option. You know, they see something, it makes them, and they, they immediately assume the worst of the, the person who's making the, who's either raising the question or who's, in this case, you were saying was having a class. And there are a lot of examples, I think, universally on, uh, universally on universities, there yeah. I can put those two words together, where yeah. we've seen free speech being trampled on and universities doing a terrible job of being consistent and defending everybody's right to having, you know, the, the ability to speak in that in that kind of environment and you know we said some things too i mean we've said that you know our social media amplifies the voices and 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 of course you know back in the old days the crackpot kid who would be the guy who would be on the the street corner with the uh with the sign you know or on, on a soapbox you could somewhat kind of ignore him but on social media they can gain a lot more a lot more of a voice if he looks like sort of a whacked out guy standing, you know, on a street corner with a cardboard, you know, sign with writing on it, that does not lend the credibility. When you don't know who somebody is, they can put doctor in front of their name or they can, you know, they can they can create an avatar of whoever they want to be. All of a sudden you don't have those indicators that can signal. So moving out of sort of that that personal experience and getting back to the sort of governmental efforts, mm. I certainly want to make sure that we are making time to hear your thoughts on your trip to Ukraine. So first off, what were you doing there? Sorry for the hard pivot, but I just want to make sure we have time for it. The Center for Information Resilience, where I'm the vice president, does work countering disinformation in Ukraine about the war in Ukraine. So we've got a map called Eyes on Russia, where since the beginning of the full-scale invasion, we've been tracking Russian military movements as well as, you know, missile strikes and things like that. That's all, you know, out there for everybody to use, open source. And then we do some other research um, related to sentiment and, frankly, you know, just the disinformation narratives and responses to them um, throughout Ukraine. So that's part of the reason that, that I was there. So it was my first trip back since December 2019. I uh, I hadn't been there because of the pandemic and then the full-scale invasion and also my pregnancy. Um, and it's just recently gotten to the point where it's, I would say, I mean, it's always been in Kiev fairly safe. Um, but now the air defenses have been built up to the point where there wasn't even a, an air raid siren while I was there um, for the, for the oh, days that I was there. And it was the first attack that got through in weeks, uh, just just during this week, um, the week after I was there. So the, the air raids are pretty, or the air defenses, I mean, are pretty robust now. What was really fascinating and also kind of had surfaced some cognitive dissonance for me, and I can't imagine how it is for Ukrainians, is that Kiev is more bright, more um, lively, more resplendent than it has ever been. Like, it is truly now a world-class city. The restaurants are amazing. The bars are working. The hotels are open. Uh, if you can get there, and it does take quite a while to get into Kiev because you can't take a flight anymore. Reading your post, that's what really struck me. Yeah. Was, well, there's a picture of like a destroyed car from, I mean, obviously shit happened, but at the same time, it, it did seem so alive. And the way you were, you were describing it 
it sounded like a beautiful place to be. Yeah, it was a really great couple of days and the weather was perfect. And it just really, it took me back to when I first lived there. But the, the city is just, it's so much better than it used to be. I mean, not that it was a bad place to live before, but they've really modernized a lot of things. They've changed the pavement. So like, you used to trip a lot <laughs> walking around. Okay. There'd be like holes in the sidewalk or it'd be uneven. Um, and they've, they've, I think they started doing this the last time I was there, um, which was at the beginning of Zelensky's term. Um, but they've, it seems like it's happened everywhere now where like they've put in new pavers and everything's really like flat and the street lights are, you know, working. And it's funny with the pavers because people said, oh, it's really good that they've done all of that because in the winter uh, when we have the blackouts, like you, you need to know that the ground is flat beneath <laughs> you, which is funny but also shows kind of what people are actually dealing with and I I did talk to a few colleagues and friends who are worried again about what's going to happen in the winter and Russia's already started targeting energy facilities again now last winter again Mm. Ukraine didn't have the air defenses it has now so we'll see how they how they change that but that's just in Kiev right and I think we need to remember that Ukraine is the if you count Russia Ukraine's the second largest country in Europe if you don't count Russia, it's the it's the largest country in Europe. So whenever people say, oh, little Ukraine standing up against Russia, like it's a huge country. <laughs> it's huge. It took me 12 hours, 12 and a half hours to get from Warsaw to Kiev. And most of that is in Ukraine. Right. Wow. So it's it's big. And that's not even counting the whole eastern half of the country. I think people are f- they think that things are so bad in Kiev and really where most of the action is now is in the east. I, the large majority of the action is in the east and the occupied territories and on the line of contact between uh, occupied Ukraine and government-controlled Ukraine. Once in a while, Russia will try to lob a missile from the Black Sea or from, from Belarus into mainland Ukraine. Sometimes they strike. But but in the interim, there have been cities that were, you know, completely, completely destroyed. Bakhmut, yeah. um, very famously mm-hmm. destroyed. Mariupol, destroyed. You know, Kherson had been occupied for quite a while, and now half of it is liberated. But the infrastructure damage there was pretty severe. And while the government takes a real pride in repairing things in Kiev very quickly, the reconstruction effort is going to be it's going to be vast when the war ends. And there's also going to be a lot of demining that needs to happen. Um, just this yeah. week, a, a Halo Trust team that was working on mining, demining activities or mine mapping uh, yeah. unfortunately had a an explosion and the, nobody died, thank goodness, but people did get injured. So this is this is the reality. And so while people are going to bars and life is going on and you can drive into the country without a bunch of checkpoints and you know, the only checkpoint that I had to deal with when I was there was when I was going up to the, the cabinet of ministers building. It's still a country at war and it's just this real cognitive dissonance. And I think Ukrainians are really carrying that weight as as flippant as they can be about we're resilient, we're strong, this is what's going on. You can't live in a country at war for more than 18 months and and not feel some of that strain. So yeah, and it, it certainly seems like the Ukrainian people have, I think they knew who they were. But this has, I don't want to sound like I'm taking this too lightly, but they've kind of been able to like, do a brand refresh of really <laughs> How like they know who they are now. They know what they can do. They know that they can stand up to to Russia and that the world got behind them and heard them. But I think there's also a little bit of a framing job too of 
where the camera is going to be pointed, Kiev. And so probably best to put your resources towards making that look cosmopolitan and like a wonderful place. Maybe not so much on the areas that aren't getting the media attention. The damage is so much more extensive in other places as well. I mean, mm-hmm. in Kiev, it's just, you know, if a missile gets through and it destroys a, a road, it's pretty easy to repair that road comparatively. Yeah. But I think you're right. You know, we always used to say even before the full-scale invasion that the best thing that happened from the war in the East was that it really crystallized Ukrainian identity. And now that's been multiplied tenfold, I would say. There's definitely yeah. more Ukrainian being st- spoken on the street, but also like these ridiculous narratives coming from Russia that you can't speak Russian are just absolutely false. Um, like it's <laughs> people are and do speak Russian, you know, not a neo-Nazi country. Uh, you were talking about othering and how important that is. I mean, Russia 100% spent so much time on its state-run media in the years leading up to the full-scale invasion attempting to other Ukraine rather than, you know, understand that it was a country that had a lot in common with Russia, but was uh, less corrupt and moving toward, you know, Western integration, because that's what the people wanted. So it was a really interesting trip, but not long enough. I hope to go back for longer next time. Have you seen, uh, there's a, I guess he's a young journalist in Russia, and he goes, uh, his name is Daniel Oran, and he does a channel called 1420, where he talks to people on the street, and he does it a couple of times a week. Um, and he speaks English, but he usually speaks to a pretty varied group of people. And sometimes he has people who goes to the countryside within Russia uh, to ask questions, you know, kind of like a man on the street sort of thing. Have you uh, have you seen that channel? That I channel? haven't. That sounds really interesting, though. He is. Uh, he's. I, I keep wondering. Uh, I keep expecting him to disappear. You know, to go to a, to get invited to a gulag for a couple of years. But he. Uh, but he's done a very an excellent job asking people and talking to people on the street. And, and you can sense, I think, because he's mostly, I think, in St. Petersburg and Russia, but occasionally goes into the countryside. But you can see, you know, where people are getting their information or what their true feelings are about things. Um, and and it's, it's just, it's kind of a good way to kind of look at that sort of thing and to kind of counterbalance because, I mean, uh, I think there's this belief, I think, in the West that the Russians are basically just following blindly and going along with these types of things, but it's more complicated and nuanced. And when you, I guess it's a way for, I think, for us to see people who are under this intense pressure and how they maintain, I guess, their thoughts, you know, and there are some people who think the war is great and there's other people who think it's not Mm -hmm. so great. Uh, There's some people who support the government and some people who don't support the government, just like everywhere else. Uh, But in a place like that where, you know, there really is no uh, chance for people to have a voice. I think, you know, that's I think it's just interesting because it would give us who are not in a situation like that. uh, You know, I think that would also help us to say, you know, hey, you can here at least you can still speak your mind, you know, but try to do it in a more constructive manner. um, And don't try to basically, you know, if you're trying to make an enemy of your of your opponent, you know, that's not the way to go. This is where. (laughs) Yeah. And again, it's it goes right back to I mean, I think what we're talking about are very I used the word primal last time, but these these, you know, primal sort of psychological needs and tendencies. And if you are going to try to win over your opponent, the last thing that you should be doing is standing up and arguing and telling them that they're wrong and they're stupid and they're duped. It's about building that bridge and understanding and trying to figure out like What's our common ground that we can start to understand each other and break down those walls? So I went back and I reread both your books. Aww. Could not. I love them. 
I can hear you. Like, it's like they're audiobooks when I read Aww, them. So, so they make me so happy. But with, and I know How to Lose the Information War was written a little bit ago. And, and... I, I remember we were talking at one point and you're like, I'm not quite that naive anymore. Yeah. But what I loved about it was that not only was it kind of you exploring this heritage, but also exploring these different countries that I think in the West, sometimes we think of as a monolith. And the differences between them, but also the people and how they relate to information. Yeah. And I would love to hear your perspective on, especially between Ukraine and Russia, how are people relating to information now? Um, It sounded when you wrote your book, the first one, that folks in Poland especially were very savvy. Hmm. And Ukraine as well. But what is your, you know, from, from what you've been able to glean How do things sit now? Sorry, that's a huge question. Yeah, I I mean, I think Ukraine has always been quite savvy. It was a question of, and I actually really, I love where I leave it in the book because it it was published right after Zelensky was elected. And there was a big question among all the internationals about how he would govern and communicate. And certainly, you know, before the full scale invasion started, there were a lot of criticisms of things that he had done, but he also handled a number of huge crises. Hello, impeachment. Hello, you know, the Mm -hmm. shootdown of a Ukrainian Airlines jet over Iran. He handled them immaculately. And I would say at the beginning of the pandemic, he also did a pretty decent job of of handling that. Now things kind of, the Ukrainians will not be contained. So (laughs) I think things went sideways after that. But, um, and then of course the war started, but he was handling things really well. And so what I was interested in when I was writing that chapter, I mean, I had had experience in the country for the past three years before that. And I was thinking, what's the story of Ukraine going to be? Is he going to be able to tell a more compelling story? And he certainly, he has. I mean, I think he yeah, absolutely Yeah, mission has. accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> now, in terms of the way people are thinking, I think, again, Ukrainians are always pretty savvy about what Russia was doing, and now even more so. It's like a point of pride to not buy into Russian bullshit. It's a little more complicated in the temporarily occupied territories because obviously they have worse access to information and in some cases poor internet access, period. Like in Wuhan, yeah. Oblast, the, um, the internet has been turned off. And so uh, they are reliant on Russian propaganda or like secret telegram channels where people share pro-Ukrainian stuff. And of course, it is a risk to be found engaging with pro-Ukrainian sources as well. Certainly. So so that is a little bit more of a complex picture. And I think there also there's complexity in that the misgivings toward the government and the view of how Russia is treating them is is complicated by the fact that Russia is uh, in there and trying to rebuild these these areas and trying to provide services, often doing it very poorly because <laughs> Russia's infrastructure isn't great themselves, but they view the Ukrainian government as having left them behind. And so that's going to be a real a Ugh. real difficulty for, for Ukraine as uh, victory and then reintegration happen. Yeah. In Russia, you know, one of the most saddening things as the war has has worn on has been seeing the extent to which the propaganda about the war and you know ukrainians being neo-nazis and it's the ukrainians who are bombing their own people like all these crazy conspiracy theories has permeated the consciousness of the russian people and yes there are definitely still people who are against the war 
they can't be vocal though, right? Because either their their husband or son will get drafted or they'll get thrown in a gulag or whatever. The the criticisms have to happen really surreptitiously in some ways. And the most vocal people are are those that are, you know, the the loudest about loving Russia and believing that Russia is on a holy crusade to obliterate this country. Mm-hmm. And they believe it's okay. Like some of the reactions that we see in groups online when little children are getting killed in their beds. Uh, I mean, I don't even want to give voice to them, but you can kind of imagine what, what they are. And yeah. I think that kind of brain rot because of Putin's control of the media system there has really permeated and people have a hard time getting information about the war that's really true and accurate. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be really difficult as well. Once the war ends, you know, you're going to have an entire group of people that is just living in a different reality. And I don't know how how to, I mean, it's that's going to take its own form of reintegration into the international community as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's really complex. But I think uh, the other thing that's been really interesting in Ukraine is the way that they've pursued education during the pandemic and then the war. So one of the folks I met with who I got to know during the 2019 presidential campaign is uh, Mikhailo Fyodorov, who is the di- digital transformation mm-hmm. minister. And mm-hmm. he, he's done so many cool things in Ukraine. He had also been the, the kind of head of digital for Zelensky's campaign and brought so many things to Ukraine that Ukraine had never seen before. For example, like Zelensky had a Telegram channel where he'd post videos. And it was like he was talking to you. Like, it was like you were getting a text from Zelensky. And it was really effective. They had stickers that people could use on Telegram, like these little, like, moving, like, um, memojis, basically, before memojis existed. And it really engaged the youth who turned out in droves to vote for Zelensky um, and give him his, like, 73.3% victory um, in April 2019. Now, Fyodorov has led this kind of digitalization charge where you have government in a smartphone. Um, So they have this app called DIA, which means activity. And it has everything from like your passport, your driver's license, all these e-credentials. You can fill out a bunch of forms that you only used to be able to do by going into an office. Um, It's really drastically reduced in, I mean, there needs to be a study about this done, but it has reduced the avenues for corruption, whether it's reduced corruption or not. I mean, that's, that remains to be mm. seen. And like everywhere you go in Ukraine, you pay on your phone. I don't think I, I did not take cash out while I was there. And I didn't even remove one of my cards from my wallet. I oh, just used wow. my phone literally everywhere. In a, in a society that used to be, I mean, not super cash based, but like it was a good mix when I first moved there in mm-hmm. 2016. Um, so that's that's one thing that he's done. But he's also, going back to education, created an app. Uh, and I forget if it's called Dia School or something like that, but he's he's created an online curriculum for Ukrainian children who aren't able to attend school either because they're IDPs or um, because of the, the coronavirus when that was happening. And I, I mean, like... That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so again, despite all of the struggles, Ukraine is kind of turning into this leader in a lot of areas. And I wonder, you know, what the... If if the Western community is able to give support to Ukraine that it needs as it rebuilds and, and reintegrates the occupied parts of the country after the war ends, I mean, there, there's no telling what, what it'll do. But again, mm-hmm. I think there's also going to be a lot of opportunities for things to go south when, when that's happening. So we'll have to keep a, um, 
a watch and a, and continue supporting them. But I think it's so important that this country continue to become a democracy and, and mm-hmm. join the Western community of nations because that's what it wants and that's what it is now. Yeah. More so than ever. I mean, Ukraine just didn't feel... It didn't feel like it used to while I was there. You know, the still that core of, of Ukrainian resilience was there, but it felt like any other city in Europe. I just came from hmm. Austria before I, I was there, and maybe the trains run slightly more on time in, in <laughs> Austria, but... Um, but, but no, I thought it was really, um, really inspiring and incredible. Sorry for the soapbox there, but. Oh, that, no, that's, that is so, it's great to hear. I think it's going to be so interesting to watch how rebuilding happens. You know, if there's any level of reunification, I think all of it is, we're seeing history being made. And I think there's a lot to be learned, you know, for for the US as well, just seeing how they navigate this, how they engage with their public as as you know, a leadership team, how they prioritize. I think Michael would probably agree with me and he's here so he can if he wants to but that that ed- prioritization of education is absolutely essential for setting up your population to move forward. Uh, you know, I, I remember we were talking about Russia and how deciding that education was just not going to be one of those priorities led to this sort of slow death of really capable leaders within the country. I feel hopeful and inspired hearing that. What are the things you're going to be watching moving forward? Well, I mean, we're at the point where I think the war is a war of attrition, and that could either be attrition of troops on the Russian side or the Ukrainian side, or it could be attrition of, of Western support. And I think it is clear to me and to other people who know Ukraine well and know Russia well that Russia is not going to stop at Ukraine. If Ukraine were to yeah. crumble, which it would it would take a lot for these people to, to give up. If Ukraine were to crumble, I think we would see a, a real global crisis on our hands. And mm-hmm. as painful as the sticker might be, I think we need our governments in the West to explain to people, okay, this is why flour is costing more, because Russia, Russia decided to unilaterally yep. invade a country and has not approved the the second round of this grain deal that allows ships to to leave Ukraine. It is also targeting mm-hmm. grain silos very frequently. Um, and Ukraine feeds the world with its grain. This is why gas is more expensive, because Russia mm-hmm. is trying to, you know, make these gas flows through Europe um, at risk. It is, you know, bombing pipelines and, and things like that. It's not because we're, we're sending aid to help a country, a democratic country, defend itself from a much uh, larger, and I mean larger in the sense of bodies, uh, larger foe, um, it's it's because this country, Russia, is belligerent and has disrupted the way that the world works. And we don't yeah. want them to have a chance to do that. We don't want to give them that uh, in the future. And they won't stop. They won't stop. So we have to take a little bit of a, a little bit of pain at the pump in order to make this support continue to work. And um, I, you know, really, I do feel that any any American who met one of these Ukrainians, these resilient Ukrainians who's been sleeping in a bathtub mm-hmm. or, or, you know, taking their uh, morning commute under missile fire would be inspired to meet any of them, unless you were just a completely heartless human. So, again, talking Absolutely. about talking about human connection, I think that's one way through it. So I'm going to be looking at um, about uh, about the support that the U.S. and its allies are providing Ukraine. 
Um, and also, obviously, the, the kind of military machinations. And uh, I, I just hope it's over sooner than later, because I don't want to see this country beleaguered any more than it has to be. Didn't uh, we just see, I think, either today or yesterday, that uh, the Biden administration agreed to give longer range weapons to the Ukrainians? Yes. So that was an ex- either something from directly from the White House, but there's still a big package of aid in Congress, I believe, in the the spending bill that's being held up right now related to the shutdown. That would be an extension of, of more aid um, and not just military mm-hmm. aid as well, because they need things beyond um, longer range missiles and air defense. But yeah, there was uh, an expansion of the air defense package, which I think is going to be a good thing. Yeah. One of the things that we've been talking about in previous episodes was food security, energy insecurity. And so this all kind of ties into those types of things that we've already been talking about. Something maybe a little closer to home. And we've had this recent spat between India and Canada. And I think that's also another interesting Mm. thing about uh, talking about basically information warfare. And would you like to make a comment about that? I am not read up on that besides that it's happening. <laughs> and I think it okay. opens the door. Yep. It opens the door for more people to to do similar kind of hostage taking and violent reprisals against um, dissidents around the world. And we've seen Russia do that before, right? Look at Navalny, look at um, some of the poisonings that they've carried out against Russian dissidents who are in the uh, diaspora populations um, around the world. I think... Yeah, it's open season, which is really scary. It mm-hmm. is. I, I think it is. That's going to be more common, I think, I think in the future. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that, you know, and the, the civility that we expected among nations is also the mask is slipping in lots of ways, too. So, Well, Nina, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to hopefully have you back to talk about how to be a woman online. Still trying to figure that out myself. In the meantime, I want to encourage everybody to pick up both of Nina's books. Uh, How to Lose the Information War, I think, is a fascinating read, especially in the historical context. You know, it was written at such a, a unique point in our history. There's a lot to understand about what's going on now from that perspective. Uh, I also would love to plug How to Be a Woman Online because it is so tactically helpful as far as navigating, well, how to be a woman online, I guess I'll just go with that. But like everything from how to protect yourself, how to cope, the importance of your social network and and developing that support, and also being a great ally too. Uh, It's it's just, I mean, I'm going to get a copy for my daughter just so that she has it uh, with her because it's so, it's just like a how-to, it really is. I would also like to encourage people to go and donate to Nina's lawsuit to stand up to Fox News, basically slandering her on the regular. I don't think that's the actual law. Defamation. It's a defamation. It is defamation. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that, uh, we'll have all of that posted online. Really hopeful that that we didn't scare you away and you'll return at another no, point. No, it was uh, delightful. It was delightful. Um, and I'm looking forward to coming back. So thanks for having me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Nina. Have a great one. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of The Canary Group. If you like us, please subscribe and give us five stars on your favorite listening app. Have something you'd like us to dig into? You could reach us at info at canarygroup.org. You can also find us online at www.canarygroup.org and on social media at canarygroup.org.